Fourth Conference The Location of Immortal Life or the State of the Glorified Bodies After the Resurrection Et dixit qui se debat in trono, ecce nova facio omnia. And he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Apocalypse 21, 5 The visible sky and the earth where we live are no more than a place of passage, a mobile tent pitched for a day, the preparation and crude sketch of a better world. The present world is like a workshop where everything is in ferment and labor. The elements break against each other and decompose to assume new forms. They are borne swiftly along in mutual pursuit. Every creature groaneth and traveleth in pain even till now. Romans 8.22 They sigh for the day when, freed from bondage and corruption, they will enter into the glory and liberty of the sons of God when the Creator will renew them in a more perfect and harmonious order. That is why the world will have an end, in the true sense of the word. And, by transforming earth and sky, this end will make the universe the place of immortality. One of the leading lights of contemporary science has spoken these sublime words. No doubt the earth, in its perpetual revolutions, seeks the place of its repose. Leibniz said, The world will be destroyed and reconstructed within the space of time which the spiritual government deems fitting. Again, a writer of the Protestant school has said, It is probable that this rich variety is seeking its unity. All creatures will gather in a school of goodness and beauty. The flowers of all worlds will be assembled in the same garden. There is, moreover, one of our master's sayings, which makes this expectation a certainty. The Lord tells us, Heaven and earth shall pass, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be moved. The prophet David had once said, In the beginning, O Lord, thou foundest the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and all of them shall grow old like a garment, and as a vesture thou shalt change them, and they shall be changed. Psalm 101 In what state will creation and all creatures be, when they have irrevocably broken their ancient fetters and matured into repose, into full and consummated life? Will the earth still turn upon its axis? Will the heavenly bodies moving along at a dizzy speed revolve around their center as they do now? Will the stars continue to emit only a faint, cold gleam amidst the immensity of space? These are grave and mysterious questions, which it would be futile for human reason to seek to resolve, if it were not aided by the light of revelation. Yet no one will dispute that this study on the place of immortal life and of man's dwelling place in the age to come is a study incomparably more serious and worthy of our attention than those narrow studies which captivate men, the sole object of which is to snatch from the changing ephemeral nature of this world a few of its vain, worthless secrets. Men such as rationalists and pantheists, who do not share our hopes, but who, nevertheless, accept immortality and a future life, do not know how to define the circumstances in which the spirits will live after death. They imagine them as useless, erratic figures, wandering around in ethereal, undefined space, not restricted to any fixed abode, like shadows bereft of their consciousness and personality, immersed in that supreme being called the All-in-All, or like rivers sunk in the depths of the ocean a fantastic imaginary immortality which is simply a cold picture of eternal gloom, a dark dream of fate and nothingness. Holy Scripture contradicts all these fables and idle hypotheses. It teaches us that at the time of the second advent of Christ, the earth in which we live and the sky which gives us light will be the scene of two contrasting changes. The first of these changes will be the complete destruction of the present physical order. St. Peter says, the day of the Lord shall come as a thief, in which the heavens shall pass away with great violence, and the elements shall be melted with heat, and the earth and the works which are in it shall be burnt up. 2 Peter 3.10 
Thus this visible world, once engulfed by the waters of the flood, is destined to perish once more, and will be set aflame. The same cause which brought about the flood will produce the final cataclysm. The earth will be destroyed because the sins of men have soiled it. The elements will be entirely dissolved because, albeit without their own volition, they were made subject to vanity. The heavens will be hurled back with extraordinary swiftness because they too, in the words of Job, are not pure in the sight of the Lord. The second change, however, the total restoration of creation, will take place as soon as the ruin of the universe has been consummated. This radiant predestined temple, which the Lord will build as the most striking manifestation of His glory, cannot be for a single moment darkened and profaned by the presence of the reprobate. It will be only when these have been engulfed in the depths of the earth, and when the words, Hell and death were cast into the pool of fire, have been fulfilled, that material creation will be set free, and God will proceed with the great renovation. St. Augustine says, When the judgment has been accomplished, heaven and earth will cease to subsist. St. Peter, in 2 Peter 3.13, declares, We look for new heavens and a new earth, according to his promises, in which justice dwelleth. The universe will then be subjected to other laws. The sun and the heavenly bodies will no longer execute their revolutions, and the heavens and the earth will remain stable and at rest. False science vainly protests against the affirmations of the sacred books, and alleges that they are at variance with the laws of matter and the principles governing the elements. But how do we know that movement is an essential property of the elements and matter? Matter and the elements created for man are only his servants and auxiliaries. The Creator desired to adapt them to our circumstances and mode of existence. Now, when we are travelers and live in impermanence, matter is subject to alteration and change. But when man comes into the realm of the perpetual and absolute, the elements will be brought into harmony with the new life with which he will be endowed. Time will be no more, nor will there be henceforth any mutation of years and days. The sun shall go down no more, and thy moon shall not decrease. Isaiah 60, 20. Thus, creation will not perish. The temple of immortality will not be an ethereal, incorporeal place as some imagine and teach, but a material abode and a city. St. Anselm describes this new earth when he says, This earth, which sustained and nourished the holy body of the Lord, will be a paradise. Because it has been washed with the blood of martyrs, it will be eternally ornamented with sweet-smelling flowers, violets, and roses which will not wither. William of Paris, after declaring that the animals, plants, and mineral substances themselves will be burnt and destroyed by fire, adds, A large number of learned men among Christians consider that, after the resurrection, the earth will be bedecked with new, evergreen species and incorruptible flowers, and that a perpetual springtime and beauty will therein prevail, as in the paradise in which our fathers were placed. The following words of the prophet seem to concur with the view expressed by these two doctors. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Psalm 103. As for the order, dimensions, and structure of the temple of immortality, St. John depicts it for us in chapter 21 of the Apocalypse. In fact, in order to give us a picture of such transcendental realities which go beyond the conceptions of our mind, he is obliged to resort to enigmatic images and to obscure, mysterious expressions. To bring out the perfection and harmony of this glorious city, he tells us that it is built entirely of polished, hewn stones— in order to describe its richness and splendor, he tells us that it had a wall great and high, having twelve gates, and in the gates twelve angels, and the city lieth in a foursquare, and the length thereof is as great as the breadth. And he that spoke with me measured the wall thereof, a hundred and forty-four cubits, and the building of the wall thereof was of jasper stone, but the city itself of pure gold, like to clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third, a chalcedony, the fourth, an emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the twelfth, an amethyst. And the twelve gates are twelve pearls, one to each, and every several gate was of one several pearl. 
and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. All these expressions and images are to be understood in the figurative sense and interpreted allegorically. There are, however, certain characteristics to be kept in mind which signify that the abode of the glorified elect will present no analogy with the places where we live in this world. St. John tells us in the same chapter that there will be no temple, for the reason that the all-powerful Lord God and Lamb are themselves the temple. Nor will there be sun or moon any more, because the brightness of God is the light, and the immolated Lamb is himself the lamp. We may by analogy and induction conclude that there will be no courts of law, because there will be no wars or strife. Nor will there be any more despots or tyrants, since the Lord will be the strength and the ornament of the inhabitants of this city, and will ordain that they shall reign eternally. Because the Lord God shall enlighten them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Apocalypse 22.5 St. John himself gives grounds for all these various interpretations when he tells us, in Apocalypse 21.27, that there shall not enter into it anything defiled, or that worketh abomination, or maketh a lie. And when he informs us in the preceding verses that the gates thereof shall not be shut by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. What is certain is that everything in this city will be peaceful and divinely ordained. Sorrow and envy will be forever banished from it. For, as St. Augustine explains, sorrow and envy proceed from our evil passions and desires, which make us covet another's goods. But in the city of God there will no longer be any desires, since all those that the elect have ever felt will be entirely satisfied. The Lamb will quench their thirst in the stream of living water, and their thirst will be fully quenched. Secondly, there will be no such goods to covet. In the holy city, the goods and the wealth will be none other than the God Charity, who will give himself wholly to each of the elect in accordance with the degree and extent of his merits. Thus the totality of angels and men will be associated in perfect unity by virtue of him who is called the firstborn of creation, the head of the body of the church, who has received the primacy of all things, so that God may be all in all. Such are the sentiments and teaching of the faith and the sacred books. But from the same text which we have quoted, sacred theology infers and sets out prominently applications which are equally certain and points of view that are just as illuminating. Theology starts from the principle that, after the resurrection, the elements and material nature will be adapted to the circumstances of the glorious bodies. Consequently, we need only recall what we are taught about the state of the glorious bodies for our minds to be able to open upon new horizons and form a clearer and more precise idea of this palace of the renewed creation, destined one day to be our domain and dwelling place. The first prerogative which the resurrected bodies of the elect will enjoy will be that of satility. Just as the risen Lord passed through a tomb which was sealed, and the following day appeared suddenly before his disciples in a room the doors of which were closed, so our bodies, when they are no longer composed of an inert and gross substance, but are vivified and penetrated at every point by the Spirit, will pass through space like a ray of sunshine, and no corporeal object will have the capacity to hold them back. The second property of the glorious bodies will be agility. They will run like sparks across reeds. Wisdom 3.7 They will have the ability to move with the swiftness of thought itself, and, wherever the mind wishes, the body will convey itself immediately. Thus our bodies will no longer be bound to the earth by the force of attraction, but, freed from all corruption and all gravity, they will spring up according to their desire. And just as the Lord was taken up to heaven, so shall we be raised up to meet him in the air, and we too will fly, seated upon clouds. Even now the present physical order offers us an image and a faint reflection of this new state to which our nature will one day be raised. Do not imponderable elements, such as electricity and magnetism, freely pass through the densest and most opaque substances? And do not they move rapidly and effortlessly through granite and metals? It will be likewise with our bodies after the resurrection. Matter will no longer be able to stop or circumscribe them. Baseness will be absorbed in glory, the tangible in the spiritual, the human in the divine. 
There will be no more disease, no more death, and therefore no nourishment, no procreation, and no differentiation of sex. Our flesh, at present weak and subject to a thousand ailments, will become impassable, endowed with the strength, solidity, and consistency which will free it forever from all change, weariness, and alteration. Lastly, the resurrected elect will possess brightness. They will be encompassed with such splendor that they will appear like so many suns. In fact, this brightness will be distributed in different degrees among the elect, according to the inequality of their merits. For the brightness of the sun is one thing, that of the moon is another, and that of the stars yet another. The stars themselves differ from one another in brightness, so shall it be at the resurrection of the dead. Ephesians 15.41 The elect who appear surrounded with most glory will be the doctors. They that are learned shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that instruct many to justice as stars for all eternity. Daniel 12.3 The brightness with which the elect will be adorned will unceasingly cast out new reflections, increasing every moment. The glorified saints will eternally communicate to each other the goods they possess, and they will reflect upon one another the streams of splendor which illuminate them. The source and center of this divine brightness will be none other than God himself, who, in the words of St. John, is all light, and in whom there is no admixture of imperfection and darkness. 1 John 1, 5 The vision of God, which the elect will contemplate face to face in its essence, will inundate their souls with its most ineffable irradiations, and their souls, in turn, will illuminate their bodies, which will appear surrounded with as much brightness as created nature can contain. From this entire doctrine, we may draw the certain conclusion that our bodies will enter a mode of existence utterly different from their way of life on earth, that they will be ennobled, embellished, and transfigured to such an extent that, between this new state and the present one, there will be an infinitely greater difference than that between an inert rock and the most brilliant sunbeams, or between the purest gold and the foulest murkiest slime. Furthermore, it is written that the bodies of the saints will be modeled and formed after the risen body of Christ. Jesus Christ in the Eucharist gives us an image and likeness of what the glorious bodies will be like one day. Without leaving heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of his Father, he is substantially present every day on earth, in a thousand places. He is entire, without reduction or diminution, in each particle of the host and in each drop of the chalice. By this supernatural and incomprehensible mode of existence, does he not show that those who have launched into the new life are no longer bound or governed by the laws of the present physical nature? and that inert matter can place no obstacle against the goodness and infinite power of God? As we look over the lives of the saints, we again find innumerable analogies of that state to which we shall be raised in the life to come. As soon as a soul has soared towards God and the Spirit from above has come down into it, raising it beyond the tyranny of the senses and the bondage of the lower appetites, it happens that the flesh experiences the after-effects of the new life with which the soul is endowed, and often feels the anticipated effects of that glorious freedom which the children of God will enter. Saints like Teresa and the multitude of ecstatic souls, interiorly consumed by the fire of the seraphim, have risen up of themselves, unsupported, into the air. Saint Maur, the disciple of Saint Benedict, used to walk dry-shod over the water. Others, such as Saint Francis Xavier and Saint Alphonsus Liguri, were released from the laws of space and were seen simultaneously preaching, praying in a town, attending a sick person, or going to the aid of shipwrecked men in the most distant places. On other occasions, the light which the Spirit of God has poured into the souls of the saints becomes visible on their features, their clothing, and their whole person, illuminating them with the halo by which they appear gloriously surrounded. So it should be, for those who sow in the flesh reap corruption, and those who sow in the Spirit reap life everlasting. Galatians 6, 8 There is yet another certain truth which is of faith, and it is that once the judgment has been completed, Jesus Christ will immediately ascend back to heaven with all his elect as escort. He will point out to each of them the place which he prepared for him on the day of his ascension. I go to prepare a place for you, John 14, 2. 
For a dwelling place, the elect will have the Empyrean heaven, the one which is above all the heavenly bodies and all corporeal visible nature. As it is written, Then we who are alive shall be taken up together with them in the clouds to meet Christ in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 Does it follow that the rest of creation, the heavenly bodies, and our sublunary world will remain empty and depopulated? If this were so, why would divine wisdom rebuild them on a new plan and adorn them with all the marvels of his splendor and beauty? St. Thomas teaches us that heaven is destined to serve as the abode and principal habitation of the glorified saints, but they will not on that account be motionless and restricted within a fixed place. Each of the elect will have his throne, and they will occupy higher abodes and places according to their merit, but, observe St. Thomas, the word place, locum, is to be understood rather as excellence of rank, order of primacy, than as the eminence of the place which will be assigned. If Christ were momentarily to leave heaven, the place where he went to reside would always be the worthiest and highest, and the other places the more honorable as they were closer to the one occupied by Christ. And do not the angels who enjoy glory descend from heaven and return there at their pleasure? It must be concluded that the temple of immensity will blossom forth in its totality and in all its brilliance before the ecstatic gaze of the elect, and that, without leaving Christ for a single moment, they will have the power to transport themselves, in the twinkling of an eye, to the ends of the firmament. They will be free to explore the heavenly bodies, reappear on this earth, pass again over the places where they lived and prayed, places which were the scene of their labors and immolation. This view concurs with the texts of the sacred books, where they tell us that there are many mansions in our Heavenly Father's house, John 14.2, that the saints will shine like stars in perpetual eternities, and that wherever the body, that is, the sacred humanity of Christ, shall be, there also will the eagles be gathered, Luke 17.37. Here, science is in accord with faith and helps us to form an idea of the order, extent, and magnificence of this temple, which will serve as an abode for a renewed man. In our times, the fertile, enterprising genius of man, having explored the earth over its surface and in its innermost recesses, has launched out up to the heavenly bodies and boldly sent his voice into the heavens. Armed with the most powerful instruments which human art has ever been able to construct, contemporary astronomy has, over a wide area, rent the veil of the immense expanse which has seemed impenetrable to man's understanding, and, by patient study and analysis, has marked out the shores of the starry sky, and investigated all their depths and secrets. Now, it has been found at the present time that this earth which we inhabit is only a minute atom in comparison with the thousands of millions of worlds which fill the void of the firmament. I am not speaking solely of our planetary system. Everyone knows that the sun, which is its center, and which invigorates us by its heat at the same time as it gives us light with its rays, is separated from us by a distance of 93 million miles, and that its light, which covers 186,000 miles a second, takes more than 20 minutes to reach our eyelids. It is not only our earth which gravitates around the sun, but a large number of other vaster and more voluminous bodies which describe orbits around this same center, wider than the one described in its path by the earth in its annual journey. All these bodies, the map of which present-day science has drawn and the whole geography of which it has succeeded in elaborating with precision, are themselves mere grains of dust, insignificant specks, by comparison with this multitude of other worlds scattered about in the immensity. These innumerable stars which appear motionless and because of their incalculable distance from our earth seem to us like specks of light sown above our heads are themselves as many suns. These suns, in turn, illuminate and move planets and satellites, and they carry along with them worlds probably brighter and certainly more extensive than our solar world. If we wish to compute the number of these worlds which adorn the immensity of space, their totality forms what is called the world of constellations, we must remember that the naked eye can detect nearly 6,800 of them. Moreover, as more perfect optical instruments come to be built, their number increases in stupendous proportions. Herschel has estimated that, with the aid of a telescope, more than 20 million could be discerned.
On clear nights, an observer who watches the firmament perceives a hazy band of whiteness which surrounds the whole sky. By resolving the light, it was discovered that it is formed of an incalculable number of stars which, at the distance they lie from the earth, seem to merge and blend into a single continuous luminous path. And by analyzing their light, it was possible to learn the structure of these globes, the matter of which their atmospheric mass was composed. It was established that these fixed stars were incandescent, composed of the same elements as, and having temperatures as high as, those of the sun which shines upon us. How many other mysteries there are in the immensity of space, which our feeble minds will never succeed in penetrating? Thus it is that science, as it advances, reveals to us even more the divine greatness, and bids us exclaim, with the unbounded joy of the prophet, The heavens show forth the glory of God, and the firmament declareth the work of his hands. Day to day uttereth speech, and night to night showeth knowledge. Psalm 18. There lies man's domain, the magnificent temple destined one day to be his palace and habitation. Once resurrected, glorious and incorruptible, he will embrace with a single glance the riches which fill these spaces, and he will cover these vast distances at one stretch with greater swiftness than light itself travels over them. That science which is hostile to our beliefs has sought to turn these considerations to account in order to degrade man and combat his hopes and his glorious destiny. How can we admit, it says, that those vast spheres, inundated with light, where the elements possess all their energy and vitality, are black wildernesses devoid of inhabitants? While our planet, which, compared with other globes, is but an imperceptible speck, is supposed to serve as an abode for living creatures, capable of knowing and loving, those thousands of millions of worlds suspended above our heads are said to be composed of nothing but inert bodies, mechanically performing the law of their nature, or else of animals, slaves of their instincts, and incapable of knowing the hand which feeds them. With the aid of a telescope we can discern millions of minute animals in a drop of water hanging from a needle. Every grain of dust which we trample underfoot contains perhaps as many living, organized creatures as there are over the whole surface of the earth. And we are to believe that the Creator, so prodigal with animal life, was parsimonious with intelligent life? Could these countless worlds, intended to proclaim His glory, be merely liars suspended in the void, without a spirit capable of hearing them, and without a heart to echo them and quiver in harmony with their songs? If, then, reason and every analogy with existing things bid us conclude that life and thought actuate all these spheres, what is man amidst all these countless beings, these races endowed like him with a soul and a body, to enumerate which defies all our calculations and suppositions? And how can it be granted that he is the center of all things, that it was for him that everything was made, and that the final destiny of this multitude of creatures, probably superior in nature to himself, should be subordinated to the trials and vicissitudes of the ephemeral pilgrimage which he undergoes on this earth? To this difficulty, I answer that, on this question, the Church has defined nothing. The sacred books were not written to give a sop to our curiosity. In the account which they give us of creation, they speak of only two kinds of intelligent natures, the angels and men. They were not in the least concerned to inform us what might be the mineralogical structure and the qualities of the plants and animals in the spheres other than those which we inhabit. In this matter, the Church has not condemned any system, and the field remains open to all hypotheses and all opinions. There was a fairly general belief among the doctors of old that superior intellects were assigned to govern the celestial bodies. It is reasonable to think that beings capable of praising and blessing God fill all space as they fill all time. Thus there is no infidelity to Catholic tradition in linking the material existence of the stars to the existence of free, intelligent beings like ourselves. The Church even gives us to understand that they were the scene of the first act in the providential drama of that great struggle among the higher spirits which St. John describes in his Apocalypse a struggle of which our earthly strife is the continuation. Apocalypse 13.7 It was in the most luminous part of heaven, above the most brilliant stars, says Isaiah, that Lucifer tried to set up a throne for himself, from which he was cast down. 
It was to the summit of this heaven of heavens, says the psalmist, that Jesus Christ ascended. However, if these views are only theological opinions, what must be held as certain and as an article of faith is that all the stars and suns were reborn in the divine blood and have shared in the grace of the redemption. The scepter of heaven and earth was placed from the beginning in the hands of the Son of God. This multitude of worlds, the number as well as the dimensions of which surpass all calculation, are only the tiniest part of the dowry bestowed upon his humanity by virtue of its indissoluble union with the divinity. Above all principality and power and virtue and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and he hath subjected all things under his feet, and hath made him head over all the church. Ephesians 1.21 If you ask me why, among the spheres incomparably more vast and brilliant, the Creator sought out the smallest of the inhabited stars to make it the place of his annihilation, the scene of his labors and of the mysteries of his incarnation and of our redemption, I shall reply that the uncreated word, desiring to show the depths and the excess of his love by abasing himself to the very extreme, surged out from the bosom of his Father and from the eternal hills, as Scripture says, and, without stopping, passed through all the orders of intellectual hierarchy. Crossing the Empyrean heaven, where the angelic natures live, he did not unite himself to them, and it was not in their abode that he established his dwelling place. Descending next into the highest regions of the firmament, those lit by the great suns, he deemed them also too sumptuous and brilliant. As it is written in the Canticle of Canticles, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping over the hills, until he came to the meanest thing there was. To plant his mortal footsteps, to hide himself and to suffer, he chose among all the stars of creation one of the smallest and most obscure, confirming, in regard to the worlds as to individuals, these words of the prophet, Psalm 112, verse 7, raising up the needy from the earth and lifting up the poor out of the dunghill. No doubt from the preference Christ gave to our inferior and limited planet, and from the perpetual transubstantiation of its material substance into the body of God, which is consummated in the Eucharist, our earth has not required that preeminence in the physical order which the ancients mistakenly ascribed to it. It is the center of the supernatural world. It is the source, says the Apostle, from which spreads over all the other worlds the virtue which conserves and deifies them. It gathers within its unity all the perfections which compose the universe. It restores within its totality the diversity of created existences. Through it the heavens bowed down, God approached this base world and, to use the beautiful expression of St. Ambrose, he clothed himself in the universe as in a mantle and became resplendent among all the creatures. That is all we can say about the future state of the worlds and the place of immortality. Of course we do not intend today to describe the supreme essential happiness of the elect which we call the beatific vision, that possession of God so intimate and inherent in our being that we shall be united to it just as iron unites with fire, and seeing it face to face, at the source of the rays of its eternal essence, we shall be transformed in the resemblance of its divine splendors. That vision, called eternal life, because it confers upon man a direct and immediate sharing in the bliss of God, is not dependent on any space or place. God is infinite and everywhere present. The just soul is the sanctuary wherein it most pleases him to dwell. The angels who assist and protect us on this earth see the face of the Heavenly Father unceasingly, and the souls of the blessed, separated from their bodies, have their paradise wherever they are placed. Were they amidst the deepest darkness of the abyss, God, who possesses and completely satisfies them, would not fail to inundate them with his brightness, and the joys in which he immerses them would not suffer any diminution. If man were a pure spirit, he would not need any definite material place beyond the present life. Earth and creation would then no longer have any purpose, and would be irrevocably destroyed. But mankind is destined to be reborn, whence it follows that the matter which served as its garment is also meant to be restored in the same way as its rejuvenated, glorified host. Thus mankind as a complete body and the whole of visible creation will be tried by fire, and they will come out of it dazzling and purified. 
just as a metal is not cast into the furnace to be consumed and destroyed, but to come out refined and in the state of pure gold, so the conflagration which the world will undergo will not annihilate it, but only purify and transform it into a clearer and purer image of the idea of God realized in it. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne, saying, Behold the tabernacle of God with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself with them shall be their God. Apocalypse 21.2 Oh, you must not think that because the world will cease to turn round upon itself, and ever to revolve around the same circle like a slave tied to the millstone, that in this new earth there will be no freshness in the air, no verdure in the meadows, no flowers on the trees, and no water gushing out of the springs. You imagine, perhaps, that this nature, which now runs, moves, and seethes, full of zest and life, beneath the indirect and partial light of our dark sun, is to remain inert, fruitless, and frozen, beneath the direct gaze of God. Far from it. The new world is a living thing. The heavenly Jerusalem is the eternal church, the daughter of God, the spotless spouse of the Lamb. The Lamb, the incarnate Word, occupies the center of its heart. It is He who is its life, its focus, its streaming water, and its ever-burning, inextinguishable torch. As for the fortunate creatures who dwell in it, they will forever pass rapidly from brightness to brightness, from progress to progress, from one ecstasy to another. God cannot grow, but the creature will always grow. Only it will bind itself unalterably to its center through an immense love, and this is what will be known as its repose and immobility. What practical and moral lessons are to be drawn from these teachings for the guidance of our lives and the rule of our actions? The first is this that it is the height of human folly to become attached to the perishable and corruptible goods of this life. What would you think of a great king, lord of a vast empire, who, spurning his sumptuous treasures and the glitter of his crown, kept his eyes and all his thoughts fixed on a handful of sand or a piece of slime, and set his heart and all his affections unwaveringly on this base matter? The story is told of a Roman emperor who, instead of commanding his armies and dispensing justice, spent his time killing flies. So it is with the majority of men called to possess a kingdom which encompasses the whole range of the firmaments. They excite themselves and engage in senseless fights to the death over objects more trifling than the flimsy web spun by the spider, than shriveled grass or than the paltry, worthless life of the worm crawling along at our feet. The second of these consequences is that suffering in this life is only a relative evil. There are on this earth cases of profound sorrow, of intolerable raw bruises and heart-rending indescribable separations. History affords us the spectacle of mothers who with their own eyes saw their children branded, degraded, and delivered to wretches worse than demons, who tortured their bodies and strove by countless contrivances to kill their souls. It has portrayed the spiritual anguish, worse than torture and death, which they endured. A great poet has said, He who lives in a hovel and he who lives in a palace, all in this life suffer and mourn. Queens have seen weeping like ordinary women, and the quantity of tears in the eyes of kings has brought astonishment. Yet all this heartbreak and suffering are but a laboratory and a crucible into which divine goodness has cast our nature, in order that, like coal, black and base, it may emerge in the form of a precious sparkling diamond. Jesus Christ has said, A woman, when she is in labor, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But when she hath brought forth a child, she remembereth no more the anguish, for joy that a man is born into the world. So also you now indeed have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man shall take from you. John 16.21 Thus it is with every part of creation. It is in pain, it sows the harvest to come amidst tribulation and tears, but sooner or later there will rise over it the sun of that other world, the dawn of which we can glimpse by faith, and all that now lies buried and overwhelmed beneath the weight of sin and death, 
all that sighs in pain amidst malediction and corruption, will be filled with light and joy, and will rise up again in the glory of a boundless, endless bliss. The third consequence of our doctrine is that we must not allow ourselves to be perturbed by the noise of our social strife and the convulsions of our revolutions. All this is but a prelude. It is the chaos which precedes harmony. It is motion seeking rest, twilight on the move towards day. The city of God is being built, invisibly but surely, amidst these shocks and heartbreaking convulsions. Public disasters and great scourges are none other than the sword of the Lord and the harbinger of His justice, separating the chaff from the good seed. Our wars, moral combats, and civil commotions hasten the day of deliverance, when the city of God will be perfect and complete. And when the turmoil of the ages has passed, there will come a great calm and a great pacification. Then there will follow progress and growth, the eternal dwelling place of free, intelligent creatures, the unity which will make all people a single soul in the life and eternal light of God. St. Augustine, after his baptism, having considered in what place he might serve God most usefully, determined to return to Africa with his mother, his brother, and a youth named Evodius. When they reached Ostia, they stopped there to rest after the long journey they had undertaken from Milan, and were preparing to embark. One evening, Augustine and his mother, leaning upon a window which looked onto the garden of the house, were conversing most graciously, forgetting the whole past and directing their gaze upon the heavenly future. That evening the night was calm, the sky clear, the air still, and in the light of the moon and the gentle twinkling of the stars, the sea could be seen, extending the silvery azure of its waves to the distant horizon. Augustine and Monica were seeking to discover what eternal life would be like. In a single movement of the mind they scaled the stars, the sky, and every region where bodies lived. Next they swept past above the angels and spiritual creatures, felt themselves transported to the very throne of eternal wisdom, and had, as it were, a vision of him through whom all things exist, and who is himself always, without any distinction of time. How long did their ecstasy last? To them it seemed as fleeting as a flash, and they felt unable to estimate its duration. Having recovered consciousness, and being obliged once more to hear the noise of human voices, Monica exclaimed, For my part, I find no more pleasure in this life, and I do not know what I am doing, or why I still remain here. That scene has remained famous and popular. Great masters have immortalized it in the masterpieces of their art. The paintings and images which they have drawn of it have been reproduced a thousand times, and have left, vivid and imperishable, this sublime episode in the life of Monica and Augustine. On the following day, Monica caught an illness which led to her death, and nine days after the ecstasy which had entranced and raised her above the senses, she went to contemplate face to face that sovereign beauty whose radiance and image she had glimpsed on earth. In that abode of blissful life which St. Monica glimpsed, Christ will be truly king, not only as God, but inasmuch as he is visible and clothed with our human nature, he will reign in the house of Jacob forever. His accession to his kingdom will not be definitive, and the glory with which he is invested at the right hand of his Father will not be perfect and consummated until he has finished laying his enemies at his feet. Psalm 109.1 Then all things will be subjected to him, and he himself will be subjected to the one who has bound every creature to himself. Hitherto Christ fought in union with his church, and was busy conquering his kingdom, whether by eliminating the wicked from it, or by calling to himself the just through the ineffable attraction of his mercy. His kingdom in heaven will be built on a completely new foundation, and on a model very different from the one on which it is established here below. In that new life, Jesus Christ will no longer be represented by a teaching church, and the elect will not need to be enlightened and aided by the good angels, nor to have recourse to the sacraments for their sanctification. Their state will be a pure, perpetual contemplation of the divinity, in which Christ, the head of humanity, will bear within himself, to the bosom of his Father, the totality of its members, in order to subject them to him, to whom he is himself subject.
then the Son shall be subject unto the Father. There will be no domination but that of one God, extending to all men, and there will be but one glory, the glory of God, become the possession of all. Just as the present life is subjected to various constraints and requires for its support certain kinds and conditions of air, clothing, and food, so, as St. Gregory Nazianzen says, in the kingdom of Christ, the divine vision will compensate for these different needs. The elect will find therein all that they are capable of loving and desiring. It will be their clothing, their food, and drink, and will satisfy all the demands of their renewed life. Happy he who can forget the cares of the present for a moment, and turn his hopes towards this blessed abode, raising himself up in thought to these high spheres of contemplation and love. But, O oh my God, how far these ideas are from the thoughts of most men, and where is he who will even lend a cursory attention to the few things we have endeavored to stammer out? The greater number, blinded by their passions, consumed by greed and pride, are far removed from any concern for their souls and their future. Children of men, how long will your hearts be burdened? How long will you seek your sustenance in lies and shadows? When will you cease imagining death as a curse, and regarding it as the abyss of darkness and destruction? Let us try today to understand that it is not the obstacle but the means. It is the paschal transition which leads from the kingdom of shadows to that of reality, from the life of movement to the life of immutability and indefectibility. It is the good sister whose hand will one day cast off the clouds and idle phantoms to lead us into the holy of holies of certitude and incomparable beauty. Ah, perhaps in this discourse we have been permitted to have an inkling and a glimpse of what will take place in the land of glory. So far as forming an exact idea of it is concerned, we can no more do so than the person who, having lived since his mother's womb in an underground cave, could picture to himself the light of a beautiful day. In drawing an image of the kingdom of Christ, we have been able to speak only in riddles and metaphors. But these riddles and metaphors represent great and true things, an eloquent, irrefutable commentary on these words of the Apostle, Eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man what things God hath prepared for them that love him. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 Here, speech fails. Beyond what we have said, reason is powerless to conceive anything. Man can only believe, hope, love, and hold his peace. And he said to me, These words are most faithful and true. Apocalypse 22, 6 We have obeyed you, Lord God. We have spoken these things. We have written them and we have preached them. May those who have heard them, and we with them, by a holy, sinless life, obtain one day their perfect fulfillment.